0: just
1: Welcome to another episode. Of you must remember this: the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is part ten of our ongoing series, Erotic '90s. Five, two,
0: six, four, for my love Just sex, David Just sex, not love, just sex And sex just isn't cool without condoms for protection
2: right. You're a hooker
0: He talked about pornographic materials He gave
2: me a lot of pleasure So we can show the sex act all over the place
0: I have seen one or two things in my life But never, never
2: anything like this.
1: In a total coincidence of timing, I began researching and writing this episode the very week that Madonna released a much-discussed video announcing her upcoming Greatest Hits tour. The video, which features Madonna sitting around a table in a private dining room with a bunch of comedians, including Amy Schumer, Eric Andre, Jack Black, and Kate Berlant, as well as DJ Diplo, rapper Lil Wayne, and drag star, Bob the Drag Queen, spoofs the scene in Madonna's 1991 documentary, Truth or Dare, in which Madonna and her dancers play the game, Truth or Dare. In 1991, Madonna was dared to demonstrate her oral sex technique, on an Avion bottle. The 2023 video begins with Madonna issuing a similar dare to Schumer. Amy Schumer. Oh. oh. Truth or dare? Dare, bitch.
0: Ooh. Wow, Ooh. starting off with a yeah. dare. I want you to show me, with this spread, how you lick your husband's what? asshole. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, butthole. I think we're done. I think we're done. <laughs> oh, my God, What is happening.
1: Nope. He does have a gay ping butthole. I don't think he'd mind me
0: saying. Okay, now Eric, it's your turn.
2: This is kind of like sad and gross.
0: Sad and gross is
2: very popular right now. West. Also known as Diplo. Ah, come on.
1: This is the part of the video that got the most reaction online. Although, if anyone kept watching, and I'm not sure they did, they would see that it goes on to feature Bob the drag queen replicating the Evian bottle trick, Judd Apatow directing Jack Black and Lil Wayne to recreate a pose from the sex book with Madonna, the whole table singing La Isla Bonita, and finally, Madonna accepting Schumer's dare to launch a greatest hits world tour. Of the 40 years of music that Madonna references in this clip, Only two recordings are heard, and they were both singles released in 1990, Vogue and Justify My Love. The reaction to this video online is proof positive that Madonna has still got it, with it being the uncanny ability to make people really mad by doing something she, and maybe only she, thinks is funny. What is shocking is that Madonna, one of the most notorious cultural appropriators of the late 20th century, who Vogue magazine likened in 1992 to a vampire who continually renews herself by drawing strength from others, decided to announce a tour meant to function as a testament to her legacy as a pop star by surrounding herself with a cadre of performers of varying degrees of relevance, associated largely with comedy. It was vintage Madonna, in that it was a choice guaranteed to inspire questions like, what is she doing? Why is she doing this? Was this necessary? What is even happening? About eight years ago, during the first year of this podcast, I did two episodes about Madonna. The second of those episodes ends with a brief mention of the video for Justify My Love, which MTV refused to air in November, 1990. That's where we're going to start today because it was with that video that Madonna kicked off her own erotic nineties. Over the next two and a half years, the star would throw the full weight of her celebrity into the selling of sex. Literally with the release of her photo book, Sex in the fall of 1992, which coincided with the release of her first album of all original material in three years, Erotica. Three months later came Body of Evidence, the most sexually explicit film of her career. As we'll see throughout this period, just as now, there was big, is this necessary energy to everything Madonna was doing. And maybe that was exactly why it was necessary, at least at first. During this period, Madonna centered her body and her ideas about sexuality in ways that seemed designed to draw ridicule that in the end may have revealed more about the culture than Madonna was revealing about herself just as her current appearances and her current physical appearance and evident plastic surgery obscure the real her while revealing our never ending weirdness about how women navigate aging and what they do with their own bodies. But Madonna's multimedia onslaught of 1992 and 1993 pretty quickly began to feel repetitive even to her allies. Sex, erotica, and body of evidence each could have been perceived as going too far on their own, even if released in a vacuum. But when they were released in such close proximity to one another, they were perceived as going too far in a different way. Join us, won't you, for part 10 of Erotic 90s. Amid all the controversy about its music video, Justify My Love became Madonna's ninth Billboard number 1 single, which is kind of crazy given that it's a pre-trip-hop spoken word track based on a public enemy sample with only a wisp of a chorus that one can sing along to. I love it. I was 10 years old when it came out, and in class when we had to fill out a form to get matched with a pen pal, I named it as my favorite song, and then I got sent to the school psychologist to talk about it. I liked Justify My Love as a just prepubescent child, because it felt more blatantly adult than any song I had ever heard on the radio. And that's exactly why it was determined that I needed to speak to a psychologist. Justify My Love is one of Madonna's few signature hits of this era, which she did not have a hand in writing. The song was produced by Lenny Kravitz, who invited Madonna to record it by playing for her a demo, which consisted of Prince protege Ingrid Chavez reading a love letter she had written to Kravitz over a beat. Madonna essentially mimicked Chavez's vocal track and was so convincing in doing so that the song was read as Madonna's own sexual confession. Via its video, Justify My Love announced the vibe that Madonna would explore for the next three years in terms of platforming safe sex through normalizing masturbation and fantasy, and also giving license to sexual fluidity, kink, and queerness. The video shows a wearied, bedraggled Madonna, drawn into a hotel sex party, and emerging revived and energized. The sex we see is limited to kissing and caressing. And if the only people in the video had been Madonna and Tony Ward, a model who was her real-life boyfriend and who is her primary partner in the video, maybe MTV wouldn't have had a problem with it. Director Jean-Baptiste Mondino said he wasn't trying to make something that would get banned from MTV. "Quote." We don't see any pubes hair. We don't see any tits almost. They don't do anything wrong." MTV didn't specify what they had a problem with, but in addition to showing these two straight people enjoying each other, Justify My Love also includes a number of bodies of ambiguous gender, dancing, kissing, writhing, and laying on top of one another. The eroticization of cross-dressed or ambiguous bodies in Justify My Love might be a kind of mea culpa on Madonna's part, given that her last hit, Vogue, was then and is still criticized for appropriating and monetizing a trans dance culture that Madonna was not part of. Regardless of her motivations, In Justify My Love, Madonna seems intent on depicting herself as sexually fluid. At one point, Tony Ward is on top of Madonna and then Mondino cuts away and then cuts back. And now Madonna is kissing a person of unidentified gender. And then Mondino cuts to Tony Ward watching Madonna kissing this other person. This is only halfway through the video, But just that sequence of cuts alone are enough to suggest a number of things that movies at this time considered aberrant, including bisexuality and group sex. We haven't even gotten to the shot where a woman, styled in mimicry of Charlotte Rampling in The Night Porter, runs her hand up Tony Ward's body, grazing the front of the skimpy silver panties he's wearing under a chainmail vest. Once MTV rejected Justify My Love and Warner Brothers announced they would sell it as the first music video single for $9.99 a pop, the pop star's motives were questioned. To quote the LA Times, industry cynics who have seen Madonna cleverly court controversy in the past wonder if the shrewd pop seductress had planned to sell her clip all along hoping that sales would be fueled by media coverage of the MTV ban. The paper also quoted an anonymous observer who had seen the video. Some people will probably say it's really wild. I just got the feeling Madonna had been watching too many Zalman King movies. Madonna defended her intentions on Nightline, the ABC late-night news show, which declared the Justify My Love video to be so newsworthy that they played it in its entirety, dealing a fatal blow to MTV's pretense of being ahead of the culture. This all happened in the fall of 1990. In March, 1991, extremely late to the party, Playboy ran a would-be takedown of Madonna called Playgirl of the Western World by Michael Kelly. Kelly's piece appeared on newsstands about two months after the Justify My Love controversy, and it was an early clue to old-fashioned monthly print media's inability to keep pace with the acceleration of culture. Kelly didn't even mention Justify My Love. It clearly hadn't existed when he wrote the piece, which was mostly centered on Madonna's Blonde Ambition tour stop at London's Wembley Stadium in July, 1990. The point of the essay seemed to be twofold, to criticize Madonna for making money off of her sexuality and to warn men not to be seduced by her. Kelly uses the word parody a few times to describe what today We might call trolling. In Blonde Ambition, Madonna performs what Kelly calls a parody of nymphomaniacal masturbation. He calls her stage costumes an elaborate sneer at male notions of how women should dress to attract men. Her blandishment of underwear is not a celebration of the Fredericks of Hollywood mentality, but a parody of it an amplification and distortion of the trappings of feminine sensuality to the point of Fellini-esque grotesquerie. For those of you too young to know, Fredericks of Hollywood was a big 80s lingerie brand. In December 1990, Camille Paglia had published an op-ed in the New York Times declaring that Madonna was, quote, the true feminist. She exposes the puritanism and suffocating ideology of American feminism, which is stuck in an adolescent whining mode. Madonna has taught young women to be fully female and sexual while still exercising total control over their lives. She shows girls how to be attractive, sensual, energetic, ambitious, aggressive, and funny all at the same time. If Madonna was a true feminist to Camille Paglia, a few months later in Playboy, Kelly came up with a new adjective for Madonna's version of feminism. Quotes, Madonna is doing something no one has done before and most important, she is not doing it for the benefit of men. She is doing it as a conscious act of defiance of males and for the interest and benefit of females. Madonna did indeed reject the blue-stocking prudery of the paleo-feminists, but she did not do so in order to offer herself as a symbol of sexual submission to men. Her ethos, Kelly concludes, combines the old-fashioned use of sex as a weapon with a women's liberation-driven bitterness toward men. It is a cheap and tawdry little philosophy, born of anger, cynicism, and ennui. Just right for today. Slut feminism. He was essentially warning men not to get turned on because she was just trolling them. A slut feminist was actually worse than a regular feminist because she could confuse men into getting aroused before they realized she was going to use her power to take away their power. We've talked about this before. Four years after Fatal Attraction, the male fear that gender relations were a zero-sum game had only intensified. Playboy had put Madonna on their cover and nude photos of her inside their magazine in September, 1985. Why would they now publish this editorial that was so vehemently against her? I think it was because, in so effectively selling her own fantasy of dominance, she threatened their ability to profit off of male dominance over women and their sexuality. Kelly's essay finds a number of ways of describing Madonna's effect on fragile masculinity that are all less elegant than a comment once made by Henry Rollins, who said that Madonna made him, quote, want to do a whole lot of push-ups or go to a hardware store. In 1993, body of evidence would be laughed at for positing that Madonna's physical form was a lethal weapon. But certainly, years earlier, men like Kelly were reacting like her use of her body was a danger to them. For what it's worth, Madonna didn't hold a grudge. In her book, Sex, She wrote, I love looking at Playboy magazine because women look great naked. Kelly's Playboy piece ran the same month as the Academy Awards, where Madonna performed Sooner or Later from Dick Tracy while dressed like Marilyn Monroe, and two months after the release of what would prove to be the high point of Madonna's film career, Truth or Dare. Truth or Dare documents much of what Kelly complained about from the Blonde Ambition tour, but it positions Madonna not so much as a slut feminist, but as a First Amendment warrior willing to go to jail for the right to mimic nymphomaniacal masturbation on stage. As Lynn Hirschberg wrote in Vanity Fair, the Madonna of 1991 appears to be devoutly hardworking, more accessible, and rather maternal. In the summer of 1992, Madonna co-starred in the movie, A League of Their Own, one of the biggest box office hits of the summer. Her song from the film's soundtrack, a soggy ballad called This Used to Be Our Playground, was a number one hit. Both her singing and her look in the movie suggested a more restrained Madonna. But the Blonde Ambition Tour and its documentation were so celebrated and so lucrative, as was Justify My Love, ultimately, that it's not surprising that over the next year, Madonna set to work making content in three different mediums that would continue to push the boundaries of common decency and even common sense, monetizing images of sexual exploration. While she was filming League, a film on which she had no creative control and had her stuck, as she put it, in the Midwest, wearing an ugly baseball uniform and being incredibly unsexy, she found a creative outlet in sexual fantasies. In her downtime, she was simultaneously working on Sex, the Book, and Erotica, the Album. Both would be released in the fall of 1992. After the Justify My Love scandal, Madonna was approached about writing a book of erotica, as she explained in a TV interview. Well, after I wrote Justify My Love, I was approached by several publishing companies for some strange reason
0: to write erotica, just write it. And I had nothing to do with photographs, illustrations or anything. And so I was throwing that idea around because I, I was actually flattered. And I said, well, that, I mean, It seemed like something challenging to do to actually write a bunch of short stories, erotica. And then we thought, well, maybe I would do this thing where I would take on all these different personas and change my hair and my clothes and kind of in the vein of Cindy Sherman, who I've brought up before to people where she just totally becomes someone different from picture to picture. So ultimately what happened is I combined both of those ideas, erotica and visuals and... And that's what it is, it's a book of erotic fantasies in the words of, um, as told by Dita Parlow, a character, and she kind of takes on different personas and different characters and that's it. And there's pictures also, the pictures sometimes go with the text
1: and sometimes they're, they stand alone and that's it. As we'll see, much of the discussion about the contents of sex focused on the elements that the mainstream found taboo in that moment. Group sex, queerness, bondage. No one really talked about the photo of Madonna in a schoolgirl outfit, apparently being taken against her will by two men who look like either skinheads or members of Right Said Fred. I didn't see anyone recognize what seemed like obvious jokes in the text, such as, there's something comforting about being tied up like when you were a baby and your mother strapped you in the car seat. Maybe the problem is that most of the text is not funny and doesn't seem to be trying to be. It's mostly straight ahead erotica written in the first person. So while you read it, it's impossible to not hear in your head Madonna's voice, especially once you've heard the song Erotica, given that several pages contain versions of its lyrics. There wasn't much outrage in the 90s about a story in the book about an adult woman de a teenage boy. Although recently, right-wing troll Candace Owens decided to dredge it up to suit her own contemporary culture war. Some of Sex's text is supposedly written in the voice of Dita, a dominatrix character who Madonna would also play in the music video for the song, Erotica. But Dita doesn't always feel all that distinct from Madonna herself. Sprinkled throughout the book is a dialogue between Dita and a doctor. The doctor asks, have you ever been mistaken for a prostitute? And Dita answers, every time anyone reviews anything I do, I'm mistaken for a prostitute. 500,000 copies of Sex had been printed for sale in North America. 150,000 copies sold on the first day at $50 each, the equivalent of just over $100 in 2023 money. You couldn't just flip through it at a bookstore because it was sealed in Mylar. Madonna compared the packaging to, quote, a potato chip bag or a condom. You have to rip it open. So Madonna partnered with Lifebeat, an AIDS education advocacy group to open a viewing booth for the sex book at Tower Records in New York. For every dollar donated to LifeBeat, the donor would buy one minute of viewing time with sex. MTV sent a camera crew to the booth and aired a montage of reactions from those who plunked their money down for a preview. It's pretty thin for $50. It's a bargain on $50. If you spend $50, you're not really getting what you think you're
0: getting.
2: Those pictures are very, very, very sick.
1: Well, I think it's a little shocking. The photography is amazing. I mean, Stephen Mizell is fabulous.
2: Some of them were pornography. Real dirty pornography. I thought they were very sensual and, and it was very tastefully done. She loves to push buttons, she loves to push limits. So that's what I think she's doing.
1: If these reviews were mixed, they were more varied than those from critics, who were not only scathing, but also did not pass up many opportunities to use the sex book as a referendum on Madonna herself who everyone seemed to agree had made a fatal misstep. Calling her a dazzling reincarnation of the Warhol dogma that major fame can be achieved by minor talent, The New Yorker declared that sex gave pornography a bad name. Entertainment Weekly suggested sex was out of tune with the times. Quote, In the middle of a presidential election notable for an attempt to emphasize family values, how will people react to photos of whips, chains, pierced nipples, and tattooed lesbian skinheads holding stiletto knives to Madonna's crotch? In Vanity Fair, when Maureen Orth pointed out that last image and told Madonna she thought it was scary, Madonna replied, it's meant to be funny, not scary. This was one of two frequent explanations Madonna put forth for doing the book. Sometimes she said she wanted to open people's minds to a variety of sexual practices and gender identities. And sometimes she said she was just trying to make people laugh. I think you can laugh at the images and sex if you see yourself included in her embrace, if you're already part of Madonna's choir. But Madonna knew that in 1992, a fair number of people would look at the images in sex of interracial sex, same sex couplings, group scenarios and bondage and see them as aberrant. She probably sincerely hoped to change a few of those minds. She probably also hoped that the book would inspire the kind of anger that was better than any publicity that money could buy. I don't know if she was prepared for how closed-minded the response would be from publications that were usually friendly to her. Vanity Fair's Orth noted that in sex, mainline heterosexual images are in short supply, and then mocked Madonna for choosing Vanilla Ice as one of her only straight male partners. Madonna, who the tabloids reported had had a real off-camera sexual relationship with the rapper-born Rob Van Winkle, later said she had cast him in the book for kitsch value. Meanwhile, in the New York Times, Karen James criticized Madonna, who was releasing sex as part of a massive deal she had signed that year with Time Warner, for commodifying what the middle class, her target audience after all, is supposed to consider shocking. Shocking. But like Orth, James does seem to be shocked, or at least she finds something distasteful in the lack of vanilla sex in the book, other than with vanilla ice. Of course, some of us actually like the opposite sex, James wrote. Some of us believe it is possible to have great sex without whips, third parties, or domestic pets. James also describes a scene featuring Madonna with Naomi Campbell and rapper Big Daddy Kane as a human Oreo, which is pretty racist even for 1992. Ironically, given the prudishness of its text, the Vanity Fair piece was criticized because the images accompanying the story featured 34-year-old Madonna in frilly, pastel, 1960s-style lingerie posing with giant stuffed animals. One image has her in some kind of assless lilac bodysuit, straddling what appears to be a giant dolphin pool floaty, looking back at the camera coyly. Some were offended by the images of s and and sex that Madonna thought were funny. Others were equally dismayed to see Madonna dressed up as a submissive baby doll, in a magazine that you could see while checking out at the grocery store. This issue of Vanity Fair hit stands several months after Drew Barrymore's Splendor in the Grass issue of Interview. And depending on your point of view, the Madonna version, which also features her spread out on the grass, is either a withering parody on 90s Lolita culture and the infantilizing male gaze, or a sad spectacle of a woman in her 30s desperately trying to compete in a culture that preferred to sexualize 16-year-olds. Either way, it added fuel to the increasingly valid argument that Madonna wasn't a creator so much as a riffer, and that her true artistry lay in her gaze, G-A-Z-E, although she certainly took inspiration from G-A-Y-S. Newsweek's cover the first week of November featured an extreme close-up of Madonna's face and the headline, The New Voyeurism. The story inside used as its hook the idea that, while Sex the Book promised our first barometric reading of a turbulence boiling in American culture, Madonna was, in fact, late to the party. Explicit erotic material had already been mainstreamed and middle browed, according to this ultra middlebrow mainstream publication, by AIDS. Quote, At a time when doing it has become excessively dangerous, looking at it, reading about it, thinking about it have become a necessity. Newsweek's use of the word voyeurism then didn't have the negative connotation with which some use the word voyeurism today to explain why they think sex scenes should be abolished from movies and TV. Newsweek was saying in 1992 that voyeurism was a positive activity. They were saying that it was safer and more responsible to look at filmed or photographed sex than to actually have it. With that in mind, the one thing they were willing to give Madonna credit for as an innovator was absolutely related to AIDS and the incredibly visible public stigma against the community hit hardest by that epidemic. Quote, hard as it is to imagine a major celebrity of another era making a book as graphic as sex and surviving, it's impossible to imagine anyone making one as gay. Was it the gayness that got Madonna's video for her song, Erotica, all but banned from MTV? Consisting mostly of film footage shot during the photo shoots for Sex, the video for the title song of Madonna's simultaneously released album featured her kissing several women, including Naomi Campbell and Isabella Rossellini. Vanilla Ice, who at that exact moment was starring in the big screen flop, Cool As Ice, was conspicuously absent. Is the video a commercial for the book or vice versa? Did it matter when MTV pulled the video after three late night airings and the book was off limits to Madonna's millions of young fans? We had to content ourselves with the other videos she made for the Erotica album. At the time, my favorite was Bad Girl a riff on Wings of Desire, starring Christopher Walken as the angel, and the last Madonna video directed by David Fincher. Today, I have more appreciation for Deeper and Deeper, a pastiche of images referencing Andy Warhol's factory, co-starring Warhol stars Holly Woodlawn and Udo Kier. Madonna is sort of playing Edie Sedgwick, except in spit curls, Debbie Mazur and 21-year-old Sophia Coppola are there too. These videos remain fun, but they're not nearly as narratively or artistically potent as Justify My Love or Vogue, the videos she was making just a couple of years before. Dispensing with choreography, sexual or otherwise, Madonna seems more interested in conjuring characters that don't quite cohere just as it's difficult to read sex's first person text and not think of it as Madonna's personal erotic confessional. In music videos, we were accustomed to Madonna performing directly to the camera, offering a private show for the TV viewer, even if in the context of mini movie like narratives, Open Your Heart being the most literal example of this. Her fans didn't necessarily want to see her disappear into a character. And as we'll see when looking at reviews of her next movie, her critics refused to believe she was capable of it. In late 1992, Movie Line magazine tried to put together a filmmakers' symposium on sex to run in their January 1993 issue, but they did not get the level of participation they had hoped for. As Stephen Farber wrote, In asking prominent filmmakers about their favorite sex scenes in movies, I found that quite a few were skittish. To Farber's surprise, the skittishness extended to directors known for films containing notable sex scenes or sexual themes. Neil Jordan told Farber, I haven't dealt with sex in any of my movies. At the time, he was promoting The Crying Game. The directors who refused to participate included David Lynch, Spike Lee, and Lawrence Kasdan, who Farber numbered amongst those who, quote, seemed to want to forget this part of their past and declined to comment on the subject. But some directors did talk, including Louis Mell, Martha Coolidge, Greg Araki, Ron Shelton, Roman Polanski, and Paul Schrader. Schrader made a comment that I think nails the vibe shift that was happening that may explain why directors wanted to distance themselves from their previous sexy movies. Quote, People don't really want to see sex. They want to almost see sex. This certainly seems applicable to that historical moment in which the culture was rife with sex you could almost see, but in which there was a virtual blackout when it came to depicting or even talking about real people's sex lives in the midst of a sexually transmitted epidemic. When Basic Instinct came out in the spring of 1992, LA Weekly critic Michael Ventura declared it irresponsible to release a film set in San Francisco in the age of AIDS that showed sex, but no condoms. Maybe this is why Madonna, herself an AIDS activist who had lost many people close to her, including the artist Keith Haring, had put a disclaimer in the sex book, qualifying the images as fantasy and declaring that in real life, she used and advocated for condoms. But then a few months later, she appeared in her own condom-free movie, which seemed determined to pick up the fantasy where basic instinct left off. While promoting Body of Evidence, Madonna name-checked Hitchcock and said she had been trying to emulate film noir stars like Lana Turner, with one crucial exception. Quote, in all the movies of the 40s, the bad girl has to die. Madonna said that in the first script she read for Body of Evidence, the character of Rebecca Carlson didn't die she would later imply that a bait-and-switch occurred after she signed on to the role. In the end, they killed me, so I felt that I was sabotaged to a certain extent. The death of the bad girl is one way in which body of evidence is different from basic instinct, but in many, many ways, it's virtually the same movie. In our episode on Verhoeven's film, I noted that no one made a fortune ripping Basic Instinct off, and that might be because Body of Evidence showed less than a year later that there wasn't much point in trying. Just like in Basic Instinct, the plot of Body of Evidence begins with a crew of detectives arriving at a crime scene where a man has apparently died mid-sex act. In this case, it's an older man who was found in bed his own sex tape in the VCR.
2: Nice quality. Nice ass. That was a tape in the VCR and the power was still on. So the sucker had a heart attack watching his home movies. What do you need me for?
0: He was tied up. I've heard remote, but...
2: What the hell is this? That is a nipple clamp. How would you know? He's from L.A. It just happened to be a well-informed individual. How this, uh, how does this thing work? Who cares,
1: shit okay. The voice you just heard identifying the nipple clamps was Joe Mantegna, who plays the DA. The dead man is named Andrew Marsh, and his co-star in the sex tape is Rebecca Carlson, his bottle blonde girlfriend, played, of course, by Madonna. As in Basic Instinct, Rebecca seduces a man who could get her off the hook. But while Sharon Stone's Catherine was smart enough to go after the detective investigating her, Rebecca chooses instead her defense attorney, played by Willem Dafoe. Rebecca is almost immediately indicted for murder. The DA explains to the jury that her body was the murder weapon.
2: You all can see the defendant, Rebecca Carlson. But as this trial proceeds... You will see she's not only the defendant, she is the murder weapon itself. If I hit you and you die, I am the cause of your death. But can I be called a weapon? The answer is yes. And what a deadly weapon Rebecca Carlson made of it. The state will prove that she seduced Andrew Marsh and manipulated his affections until he rewrote his will leaving her eight million dollars that she insisted on increasingly strenuous sex, knowing he had a severe heart condition. And when that didn't work fast enough for her, she secretly doped him with cocaine. His heart couldn't take the combination, and she got what she wanted. She is a beautiful woman. But when this trial is over, you will see her no differently than a gun or a knife or any other instrument used as a weapon. She's a killer. And the worst kind. A killer who disguised herself as a loving partner.
1: This speech could have been written by Playboy's Michael Kelly. It makes you think he was probably kicking himself for not predicting that the end game of slut feminism was mass androcide. The only way you can really take Body of Evidence seriously is as a referendum on how the culture views Madonna, essentially as a con artist who uses her facility with sexual variety to destroy men. At times, Body of Evidence feels like it is to basic instinct what Hot Shots was to Top Gun. Sometimes this even feels intentional. For instance, when Body of Evidence does its spin on Basic Instinct's cocaine conversation, Madonna gets a punchline.
2: Miss Carlson, do you use cocaine?
0: Cocaine use is illegal in the state of Oregon. I've never used it in Oregon.
1: (laughs) Though he is married to Julianne Moore... Defoe's lawyer pretty quickly falls under his client's spell. A number of memorable sex scenes ensue. The most famous, much hyped before the movie came out and much mocked after, features Madonna's S&M enthusiast pouring hot candle wax on her partner's body. This act of foreplay and the intercourse that follows play out on screen in almost real time. The longer it goes on, the less erotic it feels. I would not say the same for another of Body of Evidence's major sex set pieces, which takes place in a parking garage. Madonna stands on top of a car, uses one of her sensible heels to smash the light bulb above, and then, lifts up the skirt of her vertigo-esque gray suit. It would be inaccurate to say that what happens next is that Willem Dafoe goes down on her, only because given the height of her body, he doesn't have to bend down at all. This is the most graphic movie sex scene that I have watched for this project in the sense that it is difficult to figure out how it could have been simulated in the same sense that an open mouth kiss can only be simulated emotionally. The actors still have to make contact. The movie's co-writer defended the film's Baroque sex scenes. Quote, if the kind of sex we saw in the movies happened every day, why go to the movies? He's right. Although for me, only the parking garage scene has the fluid choreography, lack of inhibition, and lunatic imagination that can elevate a movie sex scene beyond what most people experience in their real lives. These two scenes, as well as another one in which Madonna masturbates while wearing the kind of white boxer briefs then associated with the Calvin Klein model Marky Mark, we're clearly trying to test the limits of what the MPAA would accept in a post-Basic Instinct world. In that sense, body of evidence's similarities to Basic Instinct serve more than just a crass commercial purpose, and the Madonna film starts to look almost like a conceptual art project designed to force the MPAA ratings board to justify its seemingly arbitrary process. These are two movies with almost identical characters and very similar plots, which are both testing the limit of how much of a woman's body can appear on screen in a Hollywood movie. The producers of Body of Evidence must have thought that the MPAA could not justify treating their film more harshly than Verhoeven's Because quality aside, they're basically the same movie and the MPAA ratings are supposed to be quality neutral. Though frame for frame, there is more nudity in Body of Evidence. Those two distinct shots of Sharon Stone in Basic Instinct's interrogation scene are more graphic than anything we see of Madonna's anatomy, even in the parking garage scene. So when Body of Evidence was submitted to the MPAA for rating in the summer of 1992, its makers were hoping for an R, but were not exactly shocked when the verdict came back as NC-17. Executive producer Steven Deutsch set to work spinning the rating as testament to the film's must-see extremity. As Deutsch told Variety, Usually when this happens, filmmakers and the distributor are arguing with the ratings board about a rating. We're not. We understand why they did what they did. This film certainly has the most explosive erotic scenes performed in any mainstream film. Basic Instinct is a cartoon compared to some of the scenes in this film. Deutsch's press tour continued on to the LA Times, where he suggested that if distributor MGM ever wanted to try to test the market for a high-profile, NC-17-rated film, this was their opportunity. Amongst the small club of NC-17 films that had been released, Body of Evidence was, he said, the first major studio film with a major star in it. No film has ever gone out with an NC-17 rating with the most famous woman in the world as its star. In August, Deutsch was telling reporters that they would not appeal the rating, though they might decide to make cuts to get an R if they couldn't get MGM to back an NC-17 release. And that is exactly what happened. I know we've done a lot of episodes since then, but this was just over a year after Thelma and Louise, for which the same studio couldn't afford to pay for proper promotion. Since then, MGM's owner, Pathé, had defaulted on their loans and the studio had been taken over by French bank Credit Lyonnais. While Body of Evidence was going before the MPAA, MGM was in the process of being restructured. Once again, they couldn't afford to gamble. And rather than allow Body of Evidence to serve as what the LA Times described as the first big test case for NC-17, MGM had director Yuli Adele make some cuts. Adel claimed he only had to cut seconds to get an R. It was actually 120 seconds, given that the R-rated version was about two minutes shorter than the NC-17. The LA Times reported that the cuts were made not to the interminable candle scene, but to the parking garage and masturbation scenes. After the cuts were made, Deutsch did another round of press, this time warning that the pendulum was swinging back towards Puritanism because a few films had been given ratings that audiences felt were too lenient. An example he cited was Batman Returns, which had been released with a PG-13 and had sparked controversy because parents claimed it was so scary that it made their children cry. Much of the complaint seems to have had to do with Danny DeVito's penguin character. Although Michelle Pfeiffer's hot to trot bondage cat woman wasn't Happy Meal friendly either. Incidentally, in an interview 30 years later, Tim Burton implied that Warner Brothers had exaggerated this outcry because they, quote, just thought it was too weird. They wanted to go with something more child or family friendly. In other words, they didn't want me to do another one. If he's right, this is a more fascinating barometric measure, to borrow a phrase from Newsweek, than Madonna's sex book, a major studio was turning away from a product that had made a ton of money, Batman Returns had been the number one film of the year at the US box office, because of cultural pressure to appeal to children. It feels like this one event goes pretty far towards answering the question of why there no longer seems to be room for any kind of sexuality in comic book and superhero movies which are most of the movies being released with a four-quadrant audience in mind. In any case, Deutsch believed that the MPAA was now responding to all the ample criticism they had received over the course of 1992 by cracking down on movie sexuality. I believe if they had basic instinct to rate over again, Deutsch said, it would be NC-17. In another interview, the producer noted that audiences hadn't been educated on the changes to the rating system which had happened over two years earlier. Madonna could have overcome a lot of the stigma of the NC-17, Deutsch said, but what we became aware of was that in the audience's mind, there is still no difference between the NC-17 and the old X. Even to critics who had spent the previous year reviewing films like Basic Instinct and Damage, Body of Evidence was perceived as more extreme. But the reviews were much like the sex book coverage in that the film was at once critiqued for going too far and for not innovating enough. This picture is so raunchy that when it was over, I wished the MGM lion could have put his paw over his face, so at least he wouldn't have seen how low his studio has fallen," wrote Julie Salmon in the Wall Street Journal. She also wrote, "'When Madonna puts on the kind of shimmery white dress Harlow used to wear, there's no point wasting time imagining what happens when the dress comes off. You know that Madonna will soon give an excruciatingly vivid demonstration and that you will see nothing she hasn't already shown us. This is an oddly mathematical way for a professional film critic to approach a movie, to suggest that the character doesn't need to get naked because the performer has already shown her body in other venues. Is this a precursor to the Mr. Skin school of criticism? in which a film's worth is judged by the minutes and inches of nudity scene? Or were Salman and other critics not really reviewing Body of Evidence as a movie, a fictional film about fictional people, but as a Madonna project in the same way that her album and her book were Madonna projects, starring and creatively led by her? Owen Gleiberman wrote as much in Entertainment Weekly, quote, the movie completes the process Madonna began last year with the release of erotica and sex. She has taken her vision of sexuality, sadomasochism as a feminist power trip, completely out of the closet, stripping it of any hint of romantic suggestion. The result, I'm afraid, is that it has lost all its mystery as well. In her hands, sex suddenly seems like school with Madonna as the whip-cracking headmistress. Watching Body of Evidence, you wonder if she'll ever feel like a virgin again. This, of course, validates Kelly's playboy screed against Madonna as a slut feminist who wants to, heaven forbid, teach a man how she likes it done but it also shows how successfully dominant Madonna's persona really was because professional film critics who know that movies are collaborative temporarily forgot that and suggested that a performer who was only credited as an actress on this film was both wholly responsible for its content and was also playing herself. According to Jay Hoberman, writing in The Village Voice, the credits couldn't be trusted. Madonna only gets a single credit here, but body of evidence is still a work of total control. He wrote, he also bought into misogynistic gossip that in the sex scenes, Madonna directs the action herself. Critics seemed unable to shift modes of viewing and analysis when watching a Madonna film. Assuming she was controlling it within the frame the way it was assumed she was controlling her videos. And even the assumption that she had total control in that sphere seems specious, given how frequently she chose to work on her videos with a director who we now know has an extremely controlling hand, David Fincher. If anything, Madonna seems to thrive as a performer when she can work with someone like Fincher, like Warren Beatty, who also likes to take control. In New York Magazine, David Denby even credited Madonna with body of evidence's costuming in the middle of a passage in which he also pulls the classic demeaning trick of suggesting both that a female performer's only value is in her attractiveness and that she's not attractive enough. Quote, Madonna also makes an attempt to merge her persona with Marlena Dietrich's, wearing a suit and beret at one point, as if she were a dazzling, svelte dish like Dietrich. This is a hapless mistake. Dietrich never relinquished her haughty reserve. The essence of her glamour was the imagined perfection of what she withheld. The result was that she was treated as a sex goddess, whereas Madonna, in this movie, is treated as a nasty whore. A pop star can be overexposed, but a movie star cannot. The photo on Denby's review was captioned, playing herself again. Denby was not the only critic to accuse her of aping Dietrich in Body of Evidence, as if this was an insult and not consistent with a reference Madonna had been courting as far back as Vogue in which she calls out Dietrich in the lyrics and is filmed in the video mimicking a shot from the Dietrich film, The Scarlet Empress. If Madonna was so overexposed, why did film critics not understand that her career was full of conscious references to golden era Hollywood glamour? In most cases, I think film critics didn't care to familiarize themselves with Madonna as an artist, They were content to say she didn't deserve to be in the tradition of the great sex symbols of the silver screen because she chose to put her body on display. Today, the internet is full of calls for a return to something like the Hays Code from people who are uncomfortable for one reason or another looking at sexual content on screen and believe that no one else should be able to look at it either. Isn't this what David Denby and other critics in 1993 were doing in celebrating the imagined perfection of a Hayes Code era star and writing off the frequently naked and maybe more importantly, frequently sexually aggressive Madonna as a nasty whore? What's more interesting is that critics could both cast aspersions on Madonna's callbacks to vamps of Hollywood's past in Body of Evidence and also acknowledge that Madonna had been the missing link between Hitchcock's blondes and Sharon Stone's modern update of Kim Novak in Basic Instinct. In her New York Times review of Basic Instinct, Janet Maslin had suggested that the character of Catherine Trammell... Was actually inspired by Madonna. Quote Madonna is an obvious model for this rich, controlling woman who turns her sexuality into a form of malice, deliberately mocking and inverting ordinary notions of heterosexual seduction. In reviews of Body of Evidence, several critics now turned the looking glass around to appraise Madonna post basic instinct. Given that Madonna can only play herself, wrote Hoberman, the movie's weirdest twist is the echo effect achieved by her seeming imitation of Sharon Stone's basic instinct impersonation of her. In The New Yorker, Terrence Rafferty also took it for granted that the omnisexual, ice-pick-wielding murderess of basic instinct was basically just Madonna. In light of Sharon Stone's brilliant appropriation of Madonna's persona in Basic Instinct, is Madonna still the author of Madonna? My layman's opinion on this issue is that Stone's Madonna is so much wittier and sexier than its model that it obliterates the original. It turns the real Madonna into an immaterial girl. Even though I lived through this time period and have vivid memories of it, I don't think I fully understood the threat Madonna posed to conventional sexual mores until I read these Body of Evidence reviews. It's one thing to describe Body of Evidence as a bad movie, which it absolutely is, or to call the sex scenes laughable, which they are, or boring which they can be. It's another to compare them to gay porn, as one prominent critic did. Because that critic did not specify what they actually meant by that, I have to assume that it's at base shorthand for not being able to file body of evidence's sex scenes in amongst typical Hollywood movie heterosexual sex scenes. And I guess the reason why you can't do that is because the female partner is most of the time in control. It's not because the scenes themselves are gay. There is no gay sex on screen in this film. In fact, Madonna's character is arguably homophobic in that while on the stand in the courtroom... She outs a man in order to protect herself. In this clip, the DA is trying to suggest that before the death of Andrew Marsh, who she's on trial for killing, she had planned to murder a previous boyfriend, Jeffrey Roston, played by Franklin Jella.
2: Are we supposed to believe that Jeffrey Roston and Andrew Marsh are both coincidences?
1: They had nothing to do with each other.
2: Well, they both had bad hearts, didn't they? And they both wrote you into their wills.
0: But I already testified I didn't know anything about Andrew's heart.
2: But you knew about Rostens. Yes. And when you couldn't induce a heart attack before he had surgery to repair it, you bailed out. He wasn't any good to you. Isn't that right?
0: I left him when I found him in bed with someone else.
2: And that was grounds for leaving, as sexually liberated as you are? I couldn't compete. You couldn't compete. What was she possibly doing? Was she using a razor blade? (sighs) He was
0: in bed with another man. I never knew that about him. I felt betrayed. I couldn't handle it, so I left. And it was easier for him to think that I left because of the money, but I left because I couldn't stay.
2: Mr. Rustin isn't here to defend himself. You can say anything you want about him.
0: Yes, he is. Ask
1: him yourself. Here, the camera cuts to Langella, sitting in the back of the courtroom. Shell-shocked, he nods, then, with his head hung, leaves the courtroom. To me, this is the aspect of body of evidence that's the most ethically problematic and the aspect that would reflect the most badly on Madonna. As egotistical as she was, one thing Madonna knew was that she was absolutely indebted to the gay community. If she really had creative control over a body of evidence, and or if she was really playing herself, how could she play a scene in which she outs a man who she knows doesn't want to be outed solely out of her own self-interest? I didn't see this scene mentioned in a single review of Body of Evidence that I was able to find from the film's release in January 1993. At that time, I guess critics either thought they couldn't deal with this instance of homophobia in their movie reviews, or they didn't notice it, or they didn't care. Most were too busy using their reviews as a vehicle for deconstructing Madonna, or just ridiculing her for too eagerly embracing nudity and graphic sex. One of Madonna's allies, gossip columnist Liz Smith, had predicted that no one would be able to separate body of evidence from Madonna's other recent projects. In a column that ran on December 30th, 1992, weeks before the movie opened, Smith began by praising Madonna before diagnosing why Body of Evidence could not be given a fair shake. Body of Evidence is actually the vehicle in which Madonna's movie star quality comes to full light, Smith wrote. If this is not a great film, the fault lies not with its star, Madonna transforms the less than terrific material. But this year, Madonna in her apparent obsession to change the worldview of sex and shore up the hypocrisy of those who denounce her, may have pushed one button too many. However she intended it, the book Sex was a best-selling flop, neither erotic nor funny, an empty stunt calculated to sell like hotcakes. And what it left in its wake was a public too exhausted to pay much mind to Erotica, her adventurous and compelling album. The numbers for Erotica bore this out. It would sell less than half as many copies in the US as her last album of fully new material, Like a Prayer, which internationally outsold Erotica seven to one. Smith's analysis explains not just the hostility directed towards body of evidence by critics, but also the fatigue amongst Madonna's fans that was evident in its reception. People Magazine sent reporters to several theaters throughout the country on opening weekend and did a roundup of the collective reactions. Though a Manhattan audience applauded at Madonna's first nude scene, one patron was overheard saying, "'She's got ugly panties.'" Laughter was reported there, as well as in Cambridge, Fort Lauderdale and Detroit, suggesting these patrons agreed with Roger Ebert, who began his review by stating, I've seen comedies with fewer laughs than Body of Evidence, and this is a movie that isn't even trying to be funny. On its opening weekend, Body of Evidence earned about $7 million and landed in fifth place, far behind Aladdin and A Few Good Men which had been in theaters for 10 and six weeks, respectively. It was a disappointment, all the more so when the numbers dropped by 60% in the second weekend. At that point, MGM's theatrical division decided they had made a mistake going for the R rating, and they wanted to pull that version from release and put the NC-17 version in theaters. That version was already playing in Italy, Brazil, and Singapore, to what a marketing consultant described as extremely good business, a hell of a lot better than in the States. But MGM's home video division blocked the NC-17 theatrical release, knowing Body of Evidence would only have ancillary revenue if people could rent or buy it to see extra Madonna in the privacy of their own homes. Just as with Basic Instinct, the uncut version of Body of Evidence is now the only version that's commercially available. Variety suggested that even the NC-17 version would have been too much, too late, because Body of Evidence should have been released concurrent to sex. Quote. The studio wanted the film to come out two weeks before the book's release, but Madonna had control and didn't want to mess up the book's campaign. Unfortunately, by the time Body opened in January, everybody was so sick of seeing Madonna's body, there was no intrigue. A lot of movies open to disappointing box office and just disappear, and everyone moves on but sometimes the shot in for it is too rich. And that seems to be what happened here. Opening on the second weekend of the year and thoroughly rejected by audiences, the body of evidence corpse was trotted around all year long by a gleeful media who couldn't wait to bury Madonna for her hubris. In July, Movieline published a feature on the 100 Dumbest Things Hollywood's Done Recently. Number 47 on the list was simply Body of Evidence. The number one dumbest thing? Quote, Nobody had the balls to tell Mike Ovitz to give up on packaging Madonna for the big screen and start thinking Las Vegas and infomercials. This is accompanied by a photo of Madonna looking very serious and demure in body of evidence. For his part, in his book, Super Agent Ovitz described Madonna as disciplined, focused, and cultured, and added, some of Madonna's ideas worked out great. Her sex book with its metallic cover sold half a million copies in one week, but she never made it as an actress. No one can do everything perfectly. This, written in 2018, is much more generous than anyone seemed to be feeling in 1993. In their year-end wrap-up issue, Rolling Stone filed body of evidence along with two of the greatest catastrophes in history. The Titanic, the Hindenburg, body of evidence, Madonna, babe, There isn't a person alive on the planet who hasn't seen your boobies. So why don't you show us some acting, okay? Body of Evidence was nominated for six Razzies. It lost Worst Picture to a film we're going to discuss next week, but Madonna took the Worst Actress prize in a walk. Often, even with legendary flops, the Razzie is the final word on the matter. But because Madonna was a workaholic who continued to release and promote new material nonstop for the next four years, only taking a breather once she had her first baby, she was asked to answer for a body of evidence constantly. In an unusually frank interview with the LA Times in 1994, Madonna allowed, I'm disappointed in it, but I'm not sorry I did it. I think I did a good job but I got the blame for everything. It was like I wrote it, produced it, directed it, and I was the only one acting in it, you know? A New Yorker, she had clearly taken the Village Voice review to heart. In that same interview, she spoke more broadly and more bitterly about the backlash she felt she was facing from her year of erotica. Quote, I'm being punished for being a single female, for having power and being rich and saying the things I say, being a sexual creature, actually not being any different from anyone else, but just talking about it. If I were a man, I wouldn't have had any of these problems. Nobody talks about Prince's sex life and all the women he's slept with. You have to be intelligent about that and say, okay, what's being said here? I'm being punished for having a sex life for enjoying it and saying that I enjoy it. I really think it's that simple. She also called out other younger artists like Courtney Love and Liz Fair for not being sufficiently grateful to Madonna for paving the way for their own sexual candor. This interview was given to promote her new album, Bedtime Stories, which is less confrontational in some ways than erotica, but also includes the song, Human Nature, which includes the chorus, I'm not sorry, I'm not your bitch, don't hang your shit on me. Madonna described the song as my definitive statement in regards to the incredible payback I've received for having the nerve to talk about the things that I did in the past few years. Madonna may not have been sorry, but she was also still the ultimate capitalist and she could remain defiantly defensive of her erotic content because she was simultaneously raking it in from the polar opposite end of the spectrum. Village Voice rock critic Robert Christgau once rattled off a list of genres with which Madonna had expressed fluency, one of which he called the housewife ballad. Between 1992 and 1994, while she was putting herself out there as a missionary, spreading the gospel of non-missionary sex and often paying a figurative and literal price for it, she was also racking up hits in this decidedly tame genre, one hit after another. This Used To Be My Playground, released in June 1992, went to number one. A year later, Rain, the fourth single from Erotica, was in heavy rotation on MTV and adult contemporary radio. Then came I'll Remember in March 1994, and in December of that year, another number one, Take A Bow. The truth is, after Justify My Love, none of her songs about sexual freedom went to number one. In fact, the only number one singles she had between 1991 and 2000 were these so-called housewife ballads. They were keeping her on the charts and lining her pockets while sex wasn't selling. In 1995, Just five years after her first Greatest Hits album, she put all of these songs, plus the token ballads from her earlier records and a couple of new songs, on a compilation called Something to Remember. It would serve as Madonna's definitive transition out of her erotic nineties phase and into her next incarnation as Kabbalah Mom. But that is a story for another podcast. Madonna said she was being punished for being a sexual creature. And I'm sure that's how it felt, given how personal and cruel many of the criticisms of sex, erotica, and body of evidence tended to be. But she wasn't canceled. And as the numbers for her romantic ballads show, the marketplace ultimately didn't reject her. They just rejected some of her attempts to move the needle towards acceptance of kink and queerness. Back then, she stayed in the public eye, working and releasing new music, videos, and films nonstop from Like a Prayer in 1989 until the end of the Evita Awards run in the spring of 1997, standing her ground by refusing to go away. Nowadays, it probably feels like she's being punished once again for refusing to go away, for once again refusing to be the kind of woman that others want her to be, for not aging gracefully or curtailing her desire to be seen, and instead defiantly appearing with extremely visible plastic surgery as if she really had much of a choice. In that same angry interview from 1994, Madonna spoke to the impossible situation facing women aging in public. I've thought about having a facelift, she said, but then there's this other thing, she added, which is, I am what I am, take it or leave it. But even women don't want to see women growing old. It's just the way we're programmed to think, and it's awful. On the one hand, you could say Madonna succumbed to that programming. You could also say, this is the way she is now, and we can take it or leave it. But collectively, we seem so rarely able to do that, to take or leave a woman who either doesn't conform to an aesthetic ideal or seems to work too hard in order to achieve it. The very first episode of this podcast was about Kim Novak, and it was inspired by the criticism that surrounded her appearance at the 2014 Academy Awards. She looked like she had had plastic surgery. Even with this intervention, she no longer looked like the beautiful woman people remembered. But what was she supposed to have done? This industry had always told her that the only thing valuable about her was the way she looked and that she never looked quite good enough. Any way that a woman approaches aging in that paradigm, she loses. Almost 10 years has passed since that first episode of this podcast. And when I see the way people are now talking about Madonna, I'm not sure anything has changed. If anything... Maybe now it's worse. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, And we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, you must remember thispodcast.com. You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blonde's coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.